0: After years of reading the Chronicles of Narnia, I've learned to pause for a brief chuckle there because people have gotten used to it. After years of reading the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids, one of our favorite things is coming to an Aslan moment. Whenever Aslan comes into the, onto the scene, an amazing redemption is never far behind him. In the original, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, the whispered words, Aslan is on the move, fills the room with hope an excitement and an expectation of salvation. And it's for this reason that people associate Aslan's coming and going with redemption. In fact, the characters recite a poem as a confession of faith whenever they speak of Aslan. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. What the Pevensey children, Prince Caspian, Eustace and Jill, and every other character believe about Aslan, we have found to be true about our own Redeemer. The Bible and its various stories of redemption teach us that whenever God's appointed Redeemer comes in sight, wrongs are soon made right. In Ruth 4, for example, Boaz's arrival at the city gate means that the winter of Ruth's widowhood is over, and his redemptive transaction will lead to a renewal of life. The Redeemer is a restorer, a bringer of life. And yet, if we read carefully, we will find that Boaz is just a prequel. He's just the preview, just the foreshadow, a placeholder of the even greater redeemer who will come from Bethlehem and accomplish an even greater redemption as he rescues not just an individual, not just a Moabite, but entire nations who find refuge in him. And in the end, we must come to realize that we read Ruth to catch a glimpse of our Aslan, of our Jesus Christ through whom wrongs are made right, and winter meets its death. Ruth chapter 4 is a beautiful chapter for those of us who need hope, for those of us who need reminding that all that's wrong will someday be soon right, that the grave will one day be emptied, robbed, and that that terrible tyrant death itself will be punched in the face so hard that it won't rise back up again. Ruth chapter 4 reminds us that God is sovereign, and He has sent a Redeemer. Now, at the end of Ruth chapter 3, Ruth has just arrived home. Her arms are filled with barley grain, 80 pounds of it, uh, give or take, and an anxious mother-in-law waiting to see how things turned out. Now, after hearing the report, Naomi tells Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now chapter four opens with Boaz doing just that settling the matter. He goes to the city gate where behold, suddenly the nearer kinsman redeemer comes walking by. He's like, Hey, by the way, I was looking for you. Step aside here. Things happen fast in this chapter. He finds the nearer kinsmen. He gets the judges to sit down at the gate and not, I I would guess, before breakfast is even delivered, um, there's a whole crowd waiting to see what's going to happen. Boaz will not rest. It's his first agenda of the day. Now, he's just celebrated barley harvest, which means that there's still seeds sitting on his threshing floor that still needs to be put away. But this trumps that. It is time to secure Ruth's redem- redemption, and that's exactly what he's going to do. Now, the other kinsman redeemer, the nearer man, is referred to in many of our English translations as friend. Uh, you see that in the ESV. You might see that in your NIV. That kind of doesn't do justice to the uh, alo- uh, poloni alimony that's in the Hebrew there. The, the real translation, I think, is found in, new, in the New English Translation in the Net Bible, where they call him John Doe. In Hebrew, he's literally Mr. So-and-so, Mr. No-name. Now imagine forever having your part in scripture being solidified, scratched on the stone of history as, now Mr. No-name was coming walking along, but that's exactly what happens here. And in doing so, the author's trying to show something important about this character's nature, his character. In the Old Testament, Whenever somebody's name is omitted from the story, it is generally because the author is making a point about something this character has done wrong. For example, have you ever noticed that in Exodus we don't actually find out who which pharaoh it was? Never gives his name. Never tells us the name of the pharaoh that is there. Now we can deduce it from history and from archaeological evidence, but but the the author of Exodus scratches out his name. This guy is so arrogant. This guy is so prideful, he is is, uh, obsessed with building cities to his own glory and enslaving the Hebrews to do so, that the Bible kind of gives him a backhand across the face by forgetting his name. Some pharaoh oppressed the Egyptians. On the other hand, we know who these seemingly insignificant midwives in Exodus 1 were. Their names were Shiphrah and Puah. I would have named them differently. But still, we know their names because the Bible wants you to know they're humble, they're remembered. Arrogant Pharaoh is forgotten. Out of all the cities he built and had those Hebrews carve his name into, we aren't even for sure which one it was. Why? Because the arrogant get forgotten. So when they scratch his name out of the history book of of the scriptures, out of Exodus, it's kind of this slight backhand just to show he made himself so important that he's not that important. In Ruth chapter 4, we see the same thing happening. Mr. No-Name cared so much about his inheritance than he did about the widows who had no Redeemer, and therefore, he's not that important to remember. I just want to... We should take special note of this. Okay, this is how scripture works. Those who care more about themselves, their reputations, their possessions, their importance, their power, their their prestige in front of everybody else, more than those who are in need around them, eventually will be shown just how badly they misjudged and misvalued what's truly important. I mean, this guy shows up and he values his stuff more than he values Ruth. And so the author of Ruth says he gets scratched from history because of that. My friends, can I just ask, is there, are there things that you're making more important to carve out your name in history, to carve out your name in the record books, to carve out some kind of memory that you're actually going to be forgotten because you have forgotten the people who need redemption? Have we cared more about our reputation more about our influence, more about our power, more about the things that really matter, and turned our life into a power struggle, a race to the top, a ladder race, that we have forgotten about all the people around us that need help, all the Ruths and Naomis that are starving at home. God values loving kindness. God values mercy, chesed, as Micah 6.8 says everything else, your records, your power, your position, what you did in some time in history fades away. But how well we care for the roots of Naomi's never does. Never does. Now it's important to understand that Mr. No-Name was under no legal obligation to redeem Ruth. However, a faithful life is more than legality, just doing things according to the book. He might not have broken any legal obligation. So there's nowhere in scripture that mandates he's not he's not Malon's brother, so the Leveret law doesn't really completely apply to him. He is the nearest kinsman redeemer, and so in the Old Testament, it's kind of up to him. And so he breaks no law. It's not like he 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 dismisses God's law of Levirate marriage but he does break the law of kindness. He does break the law of love. After all, the law is not just about thou shalt not, and thou shalt. The law is about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law that he's broken here. How do we see this in the text? Well, after Boaz gathered the elders, he tells the nearer kinsmen, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. In other words, get going if you're going to do this. If not, move out of the way so I can. Why Boaz chose not to mention Ruth at this initial declaration is not all that clear. I like think he just talks about the land initially. He doesn't say anything about the widow. And I thought that was interesting. Why Why would he tell the guy about the land, kind of get his hopes up, and the guy says, I'll redeem it. He, I mean, just right off the bat, just jumps on that. More land? Absolutely. So why does Boaz omit Ruth's name? Well, while we don't know for sure why the author did this it does serve a purpose. Namely, it kind of highlights what's important to this guy. It highlights why his name is scratched out of the book of history. It it highlights why he's Mr. No Name. When the near-redeemer thought it was just property, he saw an opportunity to increase his wealth. Well, of course, I will redeem the land. He was fine paying just a little bit of money to double his assets. If it meant getting double the property, sure. But when Boaz reveals that the land comes with the widowed root, the man backs out. He says this, I cannot redeem it for myself. So he says, I will redeem it when there's just land involved, but then when there's a needy widow, a Moabite widow at that, uh, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, according to the Leveret laws of the time, and marrying Ruth, all of Elimelech's inheritance would be given not to the man who marries Ruth, but to their offspring. Remember the, ne- the job of the liver at law is to raise up the name of the dead person, right? So, so Malon's inheritance, Elimelech's inheritance is in no man's land now. And so there has to be an heir. Well, Boaz will step in eventually. Their offspring will inherit everything. Here's what this means that any potential redeemer that steps up to redeem Ruth is doing so out of his sheer kindness and grace and out of no benefit to himself. He doesn't get rich doing this. So the nearer kinsman's fine the moment he thought that he would be the benefactor of Elimelech's inheritance, but when he found out that he would be the, wait, which one is it? It's beneficiary if you receive, right? When he thought he would be the beneficiary, he's great redeeming things. But then, when he realizes that his redemption will come with him becoming the benefactor, not receiving a benefit, he backs out. Man, what's in it for me? He's a failed redeemer because he cares more about what's in it for him than he does about what's in it for Ruth or for Naomi. He's not willing to pay the cost it's not going to benefit him at all. But praise God that God hasn't given us any redeemer that's not willing to pay the cost, that's not willing to take on the financial risk, that's not willing to go into the hole to redeem Ruth's and Naomi's like us. Boaz knows at that moment that this redeemer will do nothing for this woman. He cares nothing for her. He cares only about lining his own pockets and backs out the moment. Now that, that may seem harsh on the man, but that is exactly what's happening here. You see, redemption requires three things in the Old Testament. Someone who's helpless and in need of redemption to, to be freed from some form of oppression or slavery or widowhood or suffering. And then a transaction must be made. Redemption always comes with a transaction. The redeemer must do something, either pay a price or transact some kind of power or do something to redeem the one who is helpless. And then finally, and probably most importantly, there has to be someone willing to redeem. I I must say, not just willing, but able who has the power to redeem. Now this near kinsman, because of his unwillingness, redemption can't be accomplished just yet. Because he backs out, and he's only only looking after his own benefit. Redemption's still on the table. And yet Boaz steps up as the real redeemer, as the ideal redeemer who says, I'll pay the price. That sandal exchange is important. Now, that may seem quirky to us, um, that they're like exchanging shoes. Like when we buy cars, some of you may throw a shoe at a salesman, but that typically has nothing to do with the purchase itself. But back then, you would exchange your sandal to show that a transaction has indeed been made, that you have bought something and that you are relinquishing up your rights and ownership to that thing. So like when, uh, when they'd buy land, typically the, the old owner would take off the sandal and hand it to the new owner, and the new owner would toss it onto the land as a symbol that it's his now. He's bought it. Now, why they did all that? There's lots of reasons. But the main point that's trying to, that the author trying to show here is somebody has paid a price, a cost has been paid, a transaction has been made, and redemption has been solidified. Boaz then turns to the elders and the crowd of the people who are gathered around to watch all this, and he says, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought or acquired, as the Hebrew says, to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his people, brothers from, his, from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So before the eyes of all, redemption has been accomplished. The price has been paid, and Boaz is now free to make Ruth his bride." Now, as a side note, I just I I find it interesting that the only places in Scripture that we find these two words paired together redeem, Goel, and acquired, Kanah. These two words only come together in significant instances. It comes together in Exodus chapter 15, verses 13 through 17, and in Psalm chapter 40, uh, chapter 74, verse 2. And guess what the context is? Exodus every single time. Whenever you see someone redeeming someone and acquiring them to himself, the author wants you to think about the Exodus because that's what Yahweh did. Yahweh made a transaction. He purchased Israel as his people and acquired them as his. They now become his people. Now Boaz does the same thing. And the point that the author is making in these word pairs is to show you that whenever redemption comes, whether it is redemption for Israel, the people, or Ruth, the widow, it always, always, always comes at a price. It always comes at a transaction where you become the redeemers. And it doesn't change when we get to the New Testament, does it? It's not like God shifts gears and changes theology for this. It stays consistent. In fact, there are quite a few parallels between our redemption and Ruth's redemption. Jesus, like Boaz, made a redemptive transaction, didn't he? He paid a price. He was willing and able to help those who were helplessly in need of redemption. He steps up. Just like Ruth, our redemption came at a cost and it was because of Jesus, our kinsman redeemer who took on flesh so that he could relate with us, suffer our suffering, die our death and bear our wrath so that we could be saved. Just listen to the beauty of the New Testament. You are not your own for you were bought with a price. Does anyone feel valueless in this place today? Valueless things come free. Valuable things are bought. Jesus buys his people for he values them. Now what did he buy them with? All of his gold, right? He emptied the bank account? Sold the car? Sold the mansion? No, no. It was by the means of his own blood that you have an eternal redemption according to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. You get to 1 Peter 1.8, and Peter tells us, that, no, it wasn't by something as cheap as gold and silver. We don't have a cheap redemption. We have a costly redemption that comes with the currency of Jesus' own perfect blood. How does it feel To be someone for whom the God of the universe took on flesh and shed his blood to purchase you, to make you his. So that for all eternity, you're not wandering around in no man's land with no redeemer. God has not left you without a redeemer. He is such a redeemer who has paid the price, a price Boaz could have never dreamed of, one without money, one without gold, one without silver, but one with his own precious blood so that you could be his. My friends, that's the gospel, that we have a redeemer who shed his blood. My goodness, this church is filled with dead people today. Jesus the great Redeemer, better, greater, bigger than Boaz, stood at the city gate, got pushed out of the city, died on a cross, shed his blood, broke his body, and you are now his. And for all eternity, Jesus stands beside the throne of the Father and says, you are all witnesses that I have redeemed and acquired these people as my bride. How beautiful is that? We are the bride of Christ. We are his people, redeemed, bought, purchased, finalized, stamped, sealed forever before the throne of God, because we have a great redeemer. When my wife and I were married, we, uh, we just celebrated our anniversary yesterday. It was uh, October 16th, and we are 11 years today. All right, 11 years yesterday. Um, when we got married, somebody told me this poem that I sincerely had never heard before. They said, well, what are you getting? You're getting something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, right? I thought, you guys are crazy. What? I don't understand that. And so all wedding day, we're getting something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. I don't remember what the blue thing was. It must not have been that important. Probably a blue stick of gum because my breath was smelly that day. We find the same thing here, though, in Ruth and Boaz's wedding. We don't know if this was their actual wedding, but the people at the gate blessed the couple with something that is both old and new at the same time. So they've got that base covered. Who knows? Boaz might have been wearing a blue tunic, and that, that, you know, that covered that base. But we have something old and something new. You see, their blessing that they give over the couple, couple interweaves God's past work and his future redemptive work that will come through Ruth's and Boaz's union. They acknowledge their role as witnesses. And then they add, may the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphratha. that's a hard word to say, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. Now let's just kind of step through this just a little bit at a time. The blessing can be broken up into three parts. The first part focuses on Ruth, the second part on Boaz, and then the final part on their future child, which is interesting that they would bless their future child because remember, uh, Ruth has been barren for 10 years. She's been married to Malon for 10 years and has no kids. From a scientific standpoint, there's no guarantee that they should have kids. So why bless the kid unless they're absolutely confident that this is what God has been planning all along? So when they talk to Ruth, when they speak of Ruth, they compare her with Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. Now if you think back on Genesis, Jacob had children by his wives, Rachel and Leah, and how tenuous that was and how weird that was and yet how awesome it was that God would keep his promises through these two women. These children eventually grew and became the 12 tribes of Israel. So you think of Judah and Benjamin and you think of Simeon and Uh, Issachar, and you can go on and on and on with these tribes. And though they might not have fully understood just how true they spoke, these people understand that Ruth uh, is going to enjoy a very similar position. She's not a Moabitess anymore, you see. She's a matriarch of Israel. Through her, God is going to build the house of Israel even further. Through her offspring, God is going to build it up and bring it to his redemptive promises. And that's exactly what we see When David arrives on the scene, guess who David's great-great-grandmother was? Ruth. She becomes like Rachel and Leah. She has a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David. And God promises David in 2 Samuel that he's going to build up for him a house, a dynasty. And it'll be from that dynasty that we have the real king, Jesus Christ. Now for Boaz, the people bless him saying, "May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem." In other words, may your n- name be proclaimed. May your name be shouted in the streets." I think it's interesting because there's two people in Scripture that are told that they're going to have a name that's proclaimed: Abraham and David. So in other words, they're, they're hinting at this fact that God's going to keep his promise to Abraham. He's going to give Abraham a great name. He gives Boaz a great name. And then he gives Boaz's descendant, David, a great name, showing that it tracks all the way along. I hope you guys see this. There are no rabbit trails in God's plan. Davidic kingship may seem to be one of these things that just kind of is an offshoot. God tried a few things. He tried the judges and they didn't work. And so he tried a new plan. That's not how it goes. God has one plan and it marches forward faithfully straight. Now we might go through ups and downs and crisscrosses and turnarounds and switchbacks and whatever, but God's plan doesn't veer off course. This has been His plan. Ruth coming to meet Boaz was a fulfillment, was a fulfillment of Abraham's great name. And then their son David would be an even further fulfillment. And then when Jesus comes and it said at his name, every knee will bow. Talk about the most famous name in history. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The Abrahamic promise will be complete. So what was started in the old... Is coming to fruition. Now we have the final part of the blessing, which is to Barz's child, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because the offspring that the Lord will give you, uh, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, just to refresh your memory, Tamar was the Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah. Right? There was a whole messy story where Tamar marries Judah's son; he dies. Marries his son, Leverett Law. He dies, and then marries a third son, and he dies, and she still has no heir. Judah doesn't keep his promise and give her his next son, and so she ends up tricking Judah and then has a baby by Judah. Okay? All that's real messy and real bizarre, but God works through it. He works through the messiness of humanity. What ends up happening is they have a son named Perez, and it's in Judah's line. And beginning with the line of Perez that we we see in Genesis 49, God's promise that one day from Judah's line will come a king. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In other words, there's going to be a king that comes. He's going to be king of the world. He's going to be king of all the nations. All the peoples are going to give tribute and obedience to him. What tribe does he come from? Judah. If you read that, you also see that he's compared with a lion, a victorious lion. So this is where we get that description of Jesus as a lion of the tribe of Judah, from Genesis 49. So the point is, why are all these connections important? The point is this. The redemptive promises of God that began all the way in the Pentateuch are being accomplished in this bizarre, weird, somewhat accidental-seeming-like this happenstantial, dinky incident that we have with Ruth and Boaz. And yet it's all according to plan. Here's what I like to think of it as. God plants this seed with Abraham. And here in Ruth, we see it begin to sprout. And we see it kind of and, bud and blossom in David. And then it finally bears fruit in Jesus. The point is, is that God keeps his promises. Who would have thought that God's promise that Abraham's offspring would bless the nations, would funnel through Ruth and Boaz's marriage? A Moabite and a Bethlehemite who accidentally meet in a field and God uses that to keep his promise to Abraham. That's sovereignty, my friends. Who could have guessed that it would have been the descendant of a Moabite woman who married the son of a Canaanite Rahab that would give birth to the lion of the tribe of Judah who would wear the crown over Israel and all the nations forever and ever and ever. The point is, is none of us could have made that plan. None of us could have guessed that this is the way that God would work. Now, have you ever felt as if God's promises were long in their and delayed maybe in their fruition? Have you ever felt that God works too slowly? Have you ever looked at your life and just seen the pattern of barrenness, famine, exile, hostility, persecution, yes, even death, and wonder where it all fits in? It's amazing because this blessing shows us that sometimes the path between God's promises and God's fulfillment is not always a straight line to us. Like I said, it comes with switchbacks and turnarounds and Come around, but God knows exactly where it's going. It's heading in the exact path that He has always planned it to be. You may wonder where the death of your husband fits into it, the death of your child. You may wonder where your cancer fits into it. You may wonder where your job loss fits into it, the bad breakup, the, all the past and the wounds and the scars. You may wonder where it all fits in. And yet, because of Ruth chapter 4, we know that it does fit in. We can trust. That it all fits to march God's promises further to fruition. You see, it's God's sovereignty. It's his redemptive road that led Joseph to Egypt in a two-year prison stint. So that his promises could come to fruition. It was God's redemptive road that led Jacob and his children to Pharaoh's court where they would be enslaved for 400 years. And then to the Red Sea. Where God would re- receive glory over Pharaoh and his army. It's the same sovereign road that led Jesus to Jerusalem, to the Sanhedrin, to Pilate's court, to Calgotha, and then to the tomb, where the disciples wondered, where in the world does this fit in the God's plan? And then on the third day, the tomb busts open, and Jesus is now sitting at their right hand, and suddenly it makes sense to us. God's redemptive road may lead you through cancer, bereavement, downsizing to the graveyard, through the graveyard, to the graveyard, in the graveyard. It may lead to all kinds of struggles and hardships, but here's what you can trust. God's redemptive road will always lead you to Christ and to the fruition of his promises. My friends, I don't know what kind of valleys you might be in, what kinds of suffering, what kinds of hardship you are currently in. Can I just ask you for the moment just to lift your eyes up and to see the horizon of God's redemption, to remember that all roads lead to Jesus in the end. All redemptive roads, no matter through the swamps, the muck, the mire, the nastiness, the hurt, the wounds, the scars... Everything you march through, you will still end up just like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress at the celestial city where God is. You'll still end up in the presence of God. You'll still be seated at the table. Your hands that are so filled with scars and wounds and terrible sorrows will one day be replaced with a wine goblet of God's grace. My friends, just feel that for the moment. That God sent Naomi to Moab, where her husband and sons died. Brought back Ruth, where they they lived a life of poverty. And yet it all led to the threshing floor and the city gate, and finally to the cross of Christ. Ruth chapter 4 ties a bow on the narrative. And shows how the redemptive reversal was accomplished for Ruth and Naomi. First, according to Ruth 1, Ruth had been married to Mahlon for 10 years, but had no children during that time. This, of course, implies that Ruth was barren during that time period. She had no kids. Um, and in, but in Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, Boaz marries Ruth, and we find out that the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now, this is only the second time that we see God's direct action mentioned in the book. The first was in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6 in which Naomi heard that God had visited or intervened on behalf of his people and caused her to have a baby. He did the same thing for Sarai and Rebekah, who was barren. He would do the same thing for Elizabeth, who was barren, and the same thing for Mary, who didn't even have a husband and was a virgin. Whenever God opens the womb of a matriarch or of someone who's barren, it's typically to demonstrate that he, not his people, is the one who preserves the line of blessing. He's the one that does it how do we get from Abraham to Jesus? Through a bunch of barren matriarchs, Canaanites, Moabites, only by God. And that's the point of it. So he he opens Ruth's womb, allows her to have a son, and she bears a son, showing God's sovereign intervention. And that son will have a son, and that son will have a son. And then we get to King David. Now that's the great reversal that we see from barrenness to fruitfulness. Now, second, we see how Naomi also undergoes a great reversal. She, if you remembered in Ruth chapter one, says that she left, she left Moab empty-handed. She went away full and came back empty-handed. She complained that the Lord had brought calamity upon her, and now here she is with a baby in her arms. The neighborhood woman pray, women praise, "Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer." And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. She believed that the Almighty had dealt very bitterly with her. But now she sees that the Lord has not left her without a redeemer. Can you imagine how sweet that news would have been? That, That you thought it was all lost. Your sons are dead. Your sons are buried. Your husband's gone. And now you hear the beautiful proclamation in verse 17. A son has been born to Naomi from empty-handed to fullness. Barrenness to pregnancy, emptiness to, uh, to fullness. But that's not where redemption ends. You would think it would be amazing just to put a period there and allow that to be the final, uh, the final section of this book. That Naomi has her hands full of a baby. That's a good happy ending, right? But the author doesn't want it to end there. He wants you to see it's just beginning there. There's new chapters to come. There's more story to come. It might interest you to know that Ruth is the only book that ends with a genealogy. It's got a 10-member genealogy, just like all the genealogies from Seth to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, and Abraham on to his sons. You see those genealogies in Genesis. And the author of Ruth borrows that 10 member genealogy format and puts it smack dab at the end of his, it's the only book that ends with the genealogy. The final word that you see in the book is David. In other words, what God has done, he has done more than just settle and satisfy the needs of Naomi and Ruth. He has now satisfied the national need for a king. Remember, it says in the book of Judges, there's no king in Israel. And so every man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, now he settles that. But he doesn't just settle that because as Christians, we know who comes from David, don't we? He's not just settled the needs of Ruth and Naomi as individuals and seemingly insignificant widows. He settles the need of Israel. And even more than that, he settles your need in 2021. He has not left you without a redeemer. The entire book of Ruth points beyond Ruth and Naomi, beyond Boaz and Obed, beyond David himself, to the great Messiah. You see, we're the barren and empty ones. We're the Naomis with empty hands. And then Isaiah 9 steps up and says, for to us a child is born. To us, a son is given of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. How amazing is that? You see, when Naomi was in the middle of her emptiness, God worked and then the women of the neighborhood said, a son has been born to Naomi. In the middle of our emptiness, Isaiah says, a son has been born for you. Jesus came. He lived a poor life. He lived as a humble Nazarite. Nazarite, A man from Nazareth. Someone that no one would even look at for importance. He said that the foxes have holes and the birds have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay down his head. He's he's this vagabond that just kind of goes around traveling the nation. And yet it's in the surprising man of Jesus... This man that we wouldn't have looked to, voted for, thought about as being a king. That God has filled the hungry with good things. He satisfies. It's by the hand of Jesus that you tear-stained Naomis will fill the fresh, warm hand of Jesus. Wipe away the tears. It is for you barren Ruths that he spreads out his wing and provides refuge. And rest at his feet. It's because of his death and resurrection. That you've been purchased and given the blessing of Abraham. So that now you can have the presence of God. He has brought outsiders. Those who are far off. He's brought you near. And not just near. Not just at the gate. Not just at the doorway. He's ripped the curtain so that you could come in. And approach the throne of God with confidence. That's our Redeemer. I don't know how much more we could say to feel the love of Christ. My friends, it is a cold fall for some of you. Feels like it's been endless winter, always winter, never Christmas. Can I just remind you that the gospel is a fireplace lit and warm for you? can I just remind you that Jesus is your Redeemer and God has not left you without one. He's paid the price for you. And one day, we will gaze upon our great Redeemer, the true and greater Boaz, the bridegroom of the church, and we will be like him as he is. Now, what can we expect? We'll end with this. When the Lion of Judah, the son of Perez, the son of Boaz, the son of David returns to set up his throne on earth? Well, I think we can expect the same thing that happens when Azan comes onto the scene in the Chronicles of Narnia. Let these words just kind of wash over you. Let them instill you full of hope. Let them fill your emptiness. Let them remind you of how God has saturated your barrenness with fruitfulness. Wrong will be right when Jesus comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. When he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Jesus is on the move. Let me say it again. Jesus, the great redeemer, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is on the move. Father, with that hope and promise, we end our study in Ruth and look forward to our study in Esther. Father, I pray that as we now celebrate the Lord's Supper, you will remind us just how you have satisfied the hungry. We are those who are thirsty and you've given us the water of life so that we will never thirst again. Father, you have filled the hungry with good things. You have filled the empty. You have satisfied those who mourn, and you are not done. God, in the future, we will see our loved ones that we have lost. We will sit at the table with our King, and we will be filled with the sweet wine of grace. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.